Most people want to live forever. I suppose if I ask for a show, I better not ask for a show of hands because I might have a few, a few who don't, but most people want to live forever. Now we don't always verbalize it to our friends and, and associates, but as long as we're feeling healthy and as long as we are, uh, you know, having a reasonably enjoyable life, uh, we never get to the place where we say, okay, I've had enough. I think I'll just check out today. I know that there are people who are depressed, and we're not talking about that, but I'm talking about the average person. It's amazing to me you have people who live into their 80s or even more, and as long as they're in good health, they want to live. And I've known a few that are in poor health, and they realize that they're dying, and they say, I want to live. And that's part of what it means to be a human being. We want to live. We want to live really forever, although some, I was giving a telecast this last week, I write an article, I can't remember which, but it, it, the, uh, the point was being made that there are those who do not want eternal life because they believe it would necessitate becoming boring at some point in time. And maybe you've thought about that. What will we do after a billion years? What, what did Christ do? What did God the Father do a billion, ten billion years ago? Ten billion squared years ago. And what will we do in the future? And I think that's one thing that we just have to trust that God knows what he's doing. And there are a lot of unknowns about eternal life. But nevertheless, uh, we trust that God knows what he's doing and it's going to be well worth it. And he promises pleasures forevermore. And it's not just, uh, you know, drugs and that sort of thing, pleasures in this world, but uh, pleasures in a, in a godly sense. But when we're young, we think that we're going to live, well, we know that we're not going to live forever. We recognize that we'll grow old someday. But that's so far off when we're young, isn't it? I think that we can all remember back to that time when, yes, we know we'll get old at some point in time. That's, that's part of our, our, our understanding of things. We recognize that, but it's so, so far away. And then one day we wake up and we start talking like our parents. Children grow up so fast. Uh, where did all the years go? And we start realizing that life is not as long as it once appeared to be. So how about you? Do you want to live forever? Or do you want to be dead forever? No memory, no thoughts, or whatever. In fact, let's notice over in Ecclesiastes, the ninth chapter. It's actually, I shouldn't have to turn over there. It's a memorization scripture, but sometimes it helps to get started right. Chapter 9 and verse 10. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Except for God raising us from the dead, there's no memory, no thought. As I believe it was the telecast, I said, you can live to be a thousand years of age and you can come up with a cure for cancer. But what good does that do you after you're gone? You won't know anything that's happening. You won't know what happened to your children, your grandchildren, and those following after. You won't know what happened to the earth other than if there is no God, 
the sun's eventually going to burn out if we don't blow ourselves up in the meantime, which is more likely the case that would happen without God. What about Psalm 146? Psalm 146 and verses 3 and 4. It says here, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. We shouldn't look to man for saving us. And his talking here is clearly about life after death. He says, His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and that very day his plans perish. And the old King James, I believe, says his thoughts perish. You won't be looking down here at people mourning over you in that, that coffin that's there. there. There's no life after death in that sense uh, that, that people think of. They think that they really won't die, but we do die. And it requires God resurrecting us. What is the path to eternal life? How do we arrive there? What, what must we do? What did God, what does God require of you in order to have eternal life? Can you write down what is required of you? And this other question, are you a checklist Christian? Are you a checklist Christian? And that's the title of this sermon. Are you a checklist Christian? Can you make a list of all those things that you need to do in order to have eternal life? But there's a little twist to it here. Let's go over to Matthew, the 16th chapter, Matthew 16. I'm sorry, Matthew 19. Let's go over to Matthew 19, and we will begin in verse 16. Now, behold, one came to him, came to Jesus, and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So here's the question. What good thing? What must I do to have eternal life? And we all think that, okay, well, we know what the answer of this is. Christ said, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, you know that. And apparently this young man knew it. So probably I could just shut up and sit down because we know the answer to it. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. But there's a little bit more to the story than that. And let's keep on reading. The young man asked Jesus, which commandments? And Jesus replied by listing several of the Ten Commandments. And in verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? All these things I kept from my youth. We have people here who have grown up in the church, many young people here, and even not so young, they've grown up in the church. Maybe not 80 or 90, but some of you who are in your 30s and 40s and 50s actually grew up in the church. And you've known about the commandments all of your life. And at least in the letter of the law, you've kept them. You haven't gone out and killed anybody. Hopefully you haven't committed adultery or fornication. Uh, you haven't just literally robbed a bank and stolen from somebody in that way. Now, we know the letter of the law is another matter, but at least in the, I'm sorry, the, the spirit of the law is another matter, but at least in the letter of law, uh, there are many people here who could perhaps claim that uh, they've kept the letter of the law, although I think that 
that's pretty uh, remote as well, even the letter of the law. But for the most part, we have. You have the Sabbath. You have the holy days. You know that you should be eating only clean meats, and you've striven to do so. Even Peter said, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I'm not sure that any of us living in our world, outside of the Jewish state that was there that Christ grew up in, uh, could make that claim because it's everywhere. And sometimes we end up eating things that we didn't realize we were eating. But as far as an intention... I think that there are many people here who have never intentionally eaten anything unclean. And we recognize what those laws are. And we can point to Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, and we could tell you what those those stipulations are. They have to have, if it's an animal, it has to have hooves that divide, and it must chew the cud. Or fish have to have scales and and uh, fins. And so we we recognize all of those things. And so we're doing pretty well on that. Our life goals are to seek the kingdom of God. As it says there in Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you, all the physical things that people want. But people in this world are looking for fame, fortune, celebrity status, happiness through things that money can buy. They want to do a lot of things. They want to have a lot of things. That's the goals that the average person has out there. But for us, it's a little different, isn't it? Maybe to some degree we want those things. We want certainly enough money to be comfortable and not to have to um, keep the, the creditor at bay. But as it says there in Luke, this ninth chapter... We can have fame, fortune, celebrity status. We can have all those things. But in Luke, the ninth chapter and verse 25, we know this. For what profit is it if a man, it, 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 let me try that again. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? So if we gain the whole world, when we come up to the end of our lives, whatever that age may be, for some it's shorter than, than others. We have a, an individual that attended a Tomorrow's World presentation down in Florida recently, 108 years old, and apparently healthy enough to come. Uh, that's pretty remarkable. But at the end of the day, what does it gain if we don't have the right goal? And so most of us recognize that, and we're striving for the kingdom of God. In John, the fourth chapter, we also find that we have a mission in life. Not just a career, but we have a mission in life. In John, the fourth chapter, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's what Jesus said. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Now, that's very interesting because... 
that even separates us from some others who keep the Sabbath and the holy days. We have a, a certain passion for doing the work. Uh, certainly, Mr. Herbert Armstrong had a passion to do the work. And Dr. Roderick C. Meredith had passion to do the work. And really set the global living church of God on the path that that was what we are to do. It wasn't very long after the apostasy set in and he was uh, no longer a part of the worldwide church that he he went on the air, a radio, very soon, within a matter of, of several months. Had a magazine going within a matter of several months. And then later was on television. And so that has been the thrust of the global living church of God is to do a work. And you know that, and I know that, and hopefully all of us are trying our best to do that in our prayers, in our tithes and offerings. That's one reason we give our tithes and offerings, is to do that work. But also, in just our our emphasis on it, which in some cases is not out there. There are those who say that, well, the work's all been done. Or we'll do a work. After we take care of ourselves, oh, they don't say it that way, but that's the way it sometimes is. That's the way that it is for some people. So, when we look at the big picture of things, we know certain things that we are to do. We could make a list of things that we know we should do. Keep the commandments. That includes the Sabbath and the holy days. Keep the laws of clean and unclean meats. Uh, pay our tithes faithfully. We, we know that. These are all things that we could check off on a list. And then we could go further and for those who grow up in the church, get baptized someday. And then we have the daily checklist. And how often we hear someone say, and I've said it before, well, I got my prayer and Bible study in today. Or I paid my tithes this month. Or I've kept the commandments. Or, as I mentioned there, I've been baptized. We have the checkoff list of things that we must do. As human beings, we often use checkoff lists, don't we? I know at the beginning of this last week, or this week, I had a long list of, of things to do, because I'll be gone next week uh, down at the NRB, and then go right into Pentecost. And you have deadlines that are flexible, you have a deadline, but you know you can fudge on that a little bit. Then you have those drop dead deadlines where there's no, there's no, uh, equivocation on because it's there. Like the ministerial conference that we had at three o'clock, it was supposed to start. And I think we did start right on time, uh, three or 301 for the ministerial conference. That's a drop dead deadline. You have to be there and you have to be ready for it. Uh, a telecast to give, a, uh, a forum to the living education students, 11.30 on Tuesday. There it was. There's that deadline. It has to be ready. And there were a number of other deadlines, including mowing my lawn at the beginning of the week and then at the end of the week so that my wife doesn't have to mow it when she gets uh, back from the NRB. And uh, so you have these these lists that we make, and, and those are good. It's good to make a list of things to do so that you don't forget something. And sometimes you have to add something. Oh, I forgot about that, so you add that to the list. And I, I love to be able to just scratch that item off when it's done. And the faster that list goes down, the better off it is. 
But there can be a danger in that. Sometimes a checklist of Christian ideas, and I speak of truly Christian ideas, uh, it can be good, it can be bad. God gives us warnings about a checklist approach to Christianity. Again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever have lists. I think it's helpful to have lists. But, for example, in prayer and Bible study, do we need a list for that or do we need a habit of that? But even in habits, we have to be careful. Luke, the 18th chapter, and verse 11, we read a very famous passage here. I'll start in verse 10. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, was it good that he fasted? I don't know about the twice a week, but was it good that he fasted? Absolutely. Was it good that he wasn't an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer? Was it good that he paid tithes of all that he possessed? Of course, those things are good. These things we ought to do. But there was a problem here, wasn't there? And that is that it kind of satisfied him. I do all these things, so I must be okay. And sometimes being okay isn't always okay. Notice over in Matthew, the 23rd chapter, Here we also read of individuals that had their checklist of things that they must do. We could read the whole chapter of Matthew 23. It's quite a scathing rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees. But here in verse 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! So we can do the right things and still be hypocrites if we're not careful. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Now these are little seeds and leaves and they would count them out. And he said, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Notice justice, mercy and faith. In a sense, those are beyond the Ten Commandments. One could make a case that they're contained within the Ten Commandments, and that's fine. But there isn't a commandment that says, you shall have faith. Or, yes, there is a commandment that you should uh, live by faith, but uh, or be merciful, or have justice, but that's not necessarily within the Ten Commandments, except in a very broad sense, and the spirit and the intent of the Ten Commandments. And we have a a wonderful booklet on that subject by Dr. Meredith, the Ten Commandments, and if you haven't studied it lately, it might be good to just be reminded, what is the spirit of the law, the intent of the law? But when it speaks of you know, tithing is, is of course, stealing if you didn't do it. So that could be under the Ten Commandments, of course. But he says, you do these physical things that are easy to say, well, I've done it. 
I can check this one off. I pay tithe on mint and anise and cumin. But there are things that are weightier. And he says, justice, mercy, and faith. But he says, these ought you to have done without leaving the others undone. So yes, the tithing is important. We ought to do that. But we should not leave the others undone. In Philippians, the third chapter, Philippians 3. And I'll begin in verse 1. Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. So these things I'm writing to you bring about safety. And then he gives some warnings. He says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. He's not talking about physical dogs there, by the way. He says, beware of the mutilation. He's talking about the Jews who are promoting circumcision and the works of the law, all those physical things that they had to do. And he's warning them against it. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So now he says, look, these are things I can check off. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. So he's saying, I did all these things. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Jew. I, I was of the stock of, of Benjamin, but part of the house of Judah. And he says, I, I can stand up against anybody when it comes to being righteous or religious. He said, I was zealous. I persecuted the church. I persecuted those that I thought were going in a wrong direction. But he came to see that that which was gained to him, he counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things for loss, all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. In other words, putting faith or confidence in his ability to keep the law. And he's really referring to the whole of the law. And, of course, we know that we can keep even the Ten Commandments perfectly. But if we break it even one time, we have the death penalty on us. And keeping the law perfectly from that day forward isn't going to undo our violation of the law. So we need something else. We need Christ Jesus, his shed blood on our behalf. And be found in him not having our own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Being conformed to his death and putting to death the old man. That's what we do at baptism. That's the starting process. That's what we're saying we want to do in life. 
We want to mortify the deeds of the body. He says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is saying here to beware of the circumcision, those that the Jewish approach toward things of that day, and it still remains that way today, where we read where Christ was constantly in conflict with them, or they were in conflict with him, more correctly, on how he kept the Sabbath. He didn't do away with the Sabbath. He was Lord of the Sabbath. He was the one that gave us the Sabbath. He was the one that rested on that day. And you're not the Lord of something that doesn't exist. So the Sabbath is important. The holy days are important. But the Jews put all of these restrictions on it and how they thought it should be kept. And they abused what God had given to them. But they could check it off, as it were. I've kept the Sabbath. I've done this. I've paid my tithes on mint and anise and cumin. I've done all these things. All those things are right and good to do. But if we think that those are the things that are going to get us into the kingdom of God, we're mistaken. We can't do it on our own strength. We need the forgiveness that comes in Christ Jesus and his shed blood. In in the book of Galatians, it's interesting that we don't spend a lot of time in Galatians, and when we do spend time in Galatians, we're usually trying to point out what it doesn't say rather than what it does say. So we're going to look at a couple things that are mentioned here in the book of Galatians, uh, the second chapter, and we'll begin in verse 15. He says, "'We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles,' Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, he speaks of the works of the law. Ergon is the word there in the Hebrew. I'm sorry, in the Greek. And it's very difficult to understand Galatians in part because sometimes he's talking about these works of the law, these physical things of the law, specifically circumcision, but also everything that circumcision entailed. It's interesting, we had an article in the Global Church News, the November-December issue, 19. I'm sorry, it, it was actually in, in uh, it, it wasn't. That's when an article came out in Archaeology Today, <clears throat> or Biblical Archaeology, on the subject of works of the law. And they had found in archaeology a, a discovery that there was this term in Hebrew that is could be translated works of the law. And it had something like 20 different stipulations of what they had to do. We had an article by Mr. John O'Gwen and Carl McNair in 1995, because that article came out 
in uh, Biblical Archaeology Review in, in 1994, November, December, at the exact time that the worldwide church was coming out with their heresy out into the open. That's when it really broke open in December, December the 24th, actually December 17th and 24th, and two sermons that were given there. And so in the next few months, there was an article by Mr. John O'Gwen and Mr. Carl McNair on works of the law. And so there is something here that Paul was probably referring to when he speaks of works of the law. But in a broader sense, we cannot have salvation by our perfect keeping of the law because we've all broken the law, speaking of the Ten Commandments. We've all broken that law. And now we need justification. We need to be made right once again, which is Christ must pay the penalty for us. Our perfect keeping of the law from this day forward will do nothing to undo what we did yesterday. But does that mean, as people take it, that therefore the law is done away with? Well, of course not. In fact, Paul makes that point in verse 17. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, if we seek our past sins to be forgiven by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, in other words, violating God's law in the future, Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, in other words, I put to death the old man. I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. And then Mr. Meredith's favorite scripture here in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. The old man is put to death. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith as it should be of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The old King James is translated slightly better there. It's not faith in, but faith of the Son of God. Jesus Christ, faith in us. So, what am I saying here? Well, the law is certainly important for us to keep. The laws of clean and unclean meats are important for us to keep. If we don't do these things, we aren't even getting to square one. Baptism is absolutely essential. Prayer, study, and meditation, and fasting, all those things are good and right. And it's not necessarily wrong to have a checklist of things you need to do for the day. But better yet, We should just simply have the habit of doing these things. It should just be the way that we are. But if we think that we can just cover the bases, just do those things, we are deceiving ourselves. Notice the third chapter, verses 5 through 7. It says, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? through circumcision, through various other works, or by the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now we know that Abraham kept God's commandments, statutes, and laws. We read that in Genesis 26 and verse 5. We know he did those things, but notice that it goes beyond the keeping of the the commandments as we read there. Abraham believed God... And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, 
know that only those who are of the faith of faith are sons of Abraham. We do it because we have faith that God's way is the right way. I, I know that we, it's hard for us to do it that way unless we have faith. But if we grow up in the church, this is just our way of life. How many people grow up Catholic or Protestant or Buddhist and they just live that way of life because that's the way that they live? That's the way they grew up. But do we really have deep abiding faith in God the Father and Jesus Christ and trust Him in everything? You know, the children of Israel did certain things until the tests came. In fact, the commentary for this week by Mr. Roger Meyer is on tests. Uh, testing, one, two, three. You know, we test the mic. That's what we do. And he points out how uh, God tests us. He tested Israel. And he tests us. And do we go back to our own thinking or do we trust in God? James weighs in on this subject. And there, there's, a, there's a sort of a, a, a controversy in our human nature of trying to be so righteous by what we do and, on the other hand, of thinking, well, I don't have to do anything because it's all been done for us. Most of us would go on the side of we have to obey God, which is right and good, but we would maybe go overboard in that way as opposed to the Protestant world, which... At least some of them think that, well, they don't have to do anything. We could read the book of James. I won't take time for that. But you'll see there. Well, let me just quote some from the second chapter. He says, but what do you want? But do you want to know? This is verses 20 and 22. Oh, foolish man, the faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? Now, God hasn't told you to sacrifice your son. And if you hear a voice saying that, well, then don't listen to it. Because God is not going to tell you that. I can assure you of that. Um, you know, there are those who sometimes have some emotional problems and they come to crazy ideas like that. This was a one-time event because it had to picture what Jesus Christ uh, or what God the Father was going to do with his son, but God stopped him from that. And yet he had great faith. This was not one of the Ten Commandments that he had to do. It was not the law of clean, unclean meats. It was God telling him to do something in this particular case that it was a one-time thing and God was testing him to see if he would be the father of the faithful, which, of course, he is. So we see this struggle in human nature to go to one extreme or the other, to try to work our way into the kingdom of God, or to think that, well, I really don't have to do that much. No, it's not important if I don't pay my tithes. No, it's not important if I eat a little bit of pork or if I do this or that. I don't think most of us go to that extreme, but some do. So what does God require of us? That's really what it gets down to. What does God require of us? 
Well, God tells us in the book of Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, Deuteronomy 10, and verses 12 and 13. It says, And now, Israel, what does the eternal your God require of you? There's the question. But to fear the eternal your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the eternal and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. So there are a number of things there that we could check off. I guess if we want to make a checklist, not that, that we're promoting that at this point, but notice that verse 13 says, keep his commandments and his statutes. But before that, he starts out by, uh, Fearing the eternal your God, having a, a deep abiding fear in respect for God, knowing that He is in charge, to walk in all His ways, to love Him. Now that we, we know that the love of God is keeping His commandments, but it really goes beyond that, doesn't it? To truly love God by doing all those things that are pleasing to Him. To serve the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Remember one of the kings that, that obeyed God, but it really was not totally in his heart. I just thought of that now, otherwise I would have looked that up. Uh, but we can, we can, we can do the things that we have to do because we have to do them, or we can do them because we truly do love God and we want to live by God's way of life. Notice Micah, the sixth chapter, another place where it tells us what is required of us. Micah 6. And verse 6. It says, With what shall I come before the eternal and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the eternal be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see, even here it's talking about justification. The sense is, yes, I have sinned. What will I do to get back in God's good graces? Is he going to be pleased with all these sacrifices? Well, you know that God gave him the sacrifices. So it's not that those things were evil to do. It has to do with the attitude of mind, of why we do it. Verse 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the eternal require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? We can keep all the Ten Commandments. We can keep the statutes and lack humility or justice or mercy. We can fail to be merciful. Now, in the spirit and in the intent of God's laws, we know that that's, that's there in the spirit and the intent of God's laws. But there's a focus here sometimes that is given that we would just say, keep the commandments, but we forget about all the other things of justice, mercy, and faith. Or in this case, justice, mercy, and, and humility that's given to us there. Isaiah 58, 
We sometimes read this, especially on the Day of Atonement, Isaiah 58. And here it talks about an attitude of mind in fasting. And so he'll start out in verse 1, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your, your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression on the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. Now, we don't fast every day, but it says they seek me daily. So it goes beyond fasting in that sense. And delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness. In other words, there's a a profession of delighting in God and did not forsake the ordinances of their God. They ask me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say? And you have not seen. Why have we afflicted our souls and you did, you took no notice? And his answer, latter part of verse three, in fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. In other words, you are fasting, but at the same time, you're violating one of my laws, which is to, you know, not exploit your labors, not, not to steal from them in that sense. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate. And to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it not, or is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is that what I want just to see you being miserable? Is that what I'm asking of you when I ask you to fast or tell you to fast? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the eternal? Verse 6, is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring your house, bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him, And not hide yourself from your own flesh. He says, if you do these things, then your light shall break forth like the morning. So it's a matter of attitude. It's a matter of approach. Are we doing it because we have to and because we think that we're doing some wonderful thing for God that he ought to just do this, you know, whatever we ask? Or are we searching our hearts and souls and minds, finding out, What's wrong with me? And how can I change? And and how can I draw closer to God that my prayers will be heard by God? It's a matter of attitude and approach, isn't it? It's not a matter of just checking off and saying, well, I did that. I prayed this morning. I studied this morning. And now I'm fasting. And so it, it ought to... This ought to happen. God ought to uh, respect that and and do for me what I hope. In 1 John 3, I heard a wonderful sermon years ago in Worldwide. It was the best sermon of the feast, at least in my estimation. 1 John 3 and verse 22. It's always stuck with me. 
He says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. So why do we receive things from God that we ask for? Because, first of all, we keep his commandments. We keep the commandments, his commandments. So this should never be construed to say that we don't keep God's commandments. No, we must keep his commandments. That's the, that's the bare minimum, you might say. But notice it goes on to say, and do, and that is a, in continuous, continuous tense, continue to do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Doing those things that are pleasing in God's sight. Now that brings up a whole question of what goes beyond the commandments that is pleasing in God's sight. Uh, we know that David was a man after God's own heart, and he wrote a lot of music. Does that mean that that's what you should do? Or poetry, is that what you should do? Well, I suppose some people can express their love for God in that way. But I'd like to go to Matthew, the 19th chapter, to bring out a principle that I've been trying to get across here in recent times. In Matthew, the 19th chapter, we read in verse 4, or verse 3, that the Pharisees also came to him, to Christ, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? The word just is, is added by the translators. But is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, they were looking back, hold your place here, but Deuteronomy, the 24th chapter. Deuteronomy 24. And verse 1. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, whatever that means, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, it says, you know, it goes on from there. But the point is that Moses, under Moses, he allowed a writing of divorcement. And it's pretty vague there as to what the cause of it is, any kind of uncleanness uh, of mind, of spirit, of body, whatever it is. He simply does not find this woman to be what he was hoping for. And so he writes her a, a bill of divorce. And so they're asking him, what are the lawful reasons that one could divorce his wife? This would indicate that this was controversial at that time. And knowing how the Jews would write everything out and spell everything out in, in their list of do's and don'ts, there were some reasons I suppose they could divorce and some reasons they perhaps couldn't. I, I realize that may be a, uh, an assumption, but th- there's, there's got to be something here that is controversial. And otherwise, they wouldn't have been asking Jesus about that. And so, how did Jesus answer the question? Because the real question that they were asking is, what is sin and what is not sin? What is okay and what is not okay? And what did Jesus do? 
He didn't go back to Deuteronomy 24. He went all the way back to Genesis to God's intention and purpose. Because for a carnal nation, God allowed a lot of things. He allowed people to have more than one wife. But was that God's intention from the beginning? There are people who still argue that point, whether it's okay to have more than one wife. I know in one area where I lived, there was one particular family that would get involved in discussions on that pretty regularly about whether it is okay to have more than one wife. Well, they can't, so why argue the point? But that that was kind of, it was a point of contention. There must have been something here that caused the, the Pharisees to ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Or are there limits upon man, what he can do as far as divorce. So Jesus went all the way back to Genesis, and he says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two, the two, not the 15 or 20, but the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God joined together, let not man separate. He didn't answer their question directly at this point as to what the grounds for divorce were. He took them all the way back. In other words, the question, is it sin, is it okay, was not the right question. It's not going to give you the right answer. He said, you're missing something. Yes, God allowed things in the Old Testament because of the hardness of their hearts. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. That was not God's intent from the very beginning. God allowed it under a carnal nation. And even when I read this years ago, many years ago, prior to our better understanding of the whole subject of divorce and marriage, I always thought, well, how is our nation any less carnal than the Jews back then or the Israelites back then? We live in a carnal world today, and God allows those things to take place so that there is some sort of order to things for the sake of children, for the sake of property, and disposing of property and everything. There's a a way of going about it. Whereas our society today doesn't even want to get married, so then you can become divorced, well, not even divorced, you can separate, and then I guess you can fight it out who owns a dog and uh, who owns the couch and all that sort of thing. But God wanted it done to be to be done in an orderly fashion, if it was going to be done, he knew that because of the hardness of their hearts, it was going to happen. So he put a stipulation in there for this physical carnal nation. But we are to have a higher standard of things. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted it. But from the beginning, it was not so. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. So now he does give a stipulation there, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her 
who is divorced commits adultery. Now his disciples said, well, if that's the case, it's better just not to get married. Which kind of shows you the state of, of even the disciples there, what they were, were thinking. If we can't divorce and marry another, maybe it's better just not to get married. Well now, we have to put this together with Mark's account. And this is not intended to be a, a sermon on divorce and remarriage. And, of course, 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. There are a number of chapters we have to put the whole big picture together on. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that oftentimes we just look at the bare minimum of what is required or what we want as opposed to what God wants. And we fail to see the bigger picture of, of what God wants from us. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day, and it's the same to the, this day, there are certain things, if you do these things, then you're okay. I remember reading about Sandy Koufax. I've talked about that in the past, given a sermon on the subject. You can go back uh, on the Day of Atonement or for the Day of Atonement about how he refused to pitch on the first day of the World Series in 19... It was 65, I can't remember exact year. But he refused to pitch on the first day of the World Series. He, would, he was the natural person to start that series. But it was a day of atonement. Now, he would pitch on the weekly Sabbath. But according to Jewish thinking, if you fast on that day, your name will be written in the book of life. Uh, in so many words. That's kind of the, it's the one day that they must really observe. So, you can check that off. I've kept the Feast of, or the Day of Atonement. You see, that's not the approach that God wants from us. We don't just do the bare minimum. We do what God wants, and then we remember justice and mercy and faith and compassion and all the rest of the the things that he mentions in Scripture. Let's notice some of those things. In Colossians 3, Colossians 3, and verse 12. He's, let's start in verse 11. It says, In him, I'm sorry, I better get the right chapter, Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, or being able to be taught, a ready mind for instruction, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. I remember hearing somebody telling a story about bringing two men together who had differences of opinions about things. They were fighting amongst themselves. And the minister essentially said at the end of the conversation, will you forgive one another? And the men almost simultaneously said, never. Never. And one of the two ministers that was there just 
closed his Bible and left. Where do you go from there? How in the world can anybody think that he's going to be in the kingdom of God if he can't forgive someone else for something he's done? There, there are other scriptures on that subject. Jesus makes that very clear. After giving the what is called the Lord's Prayer, if we are unable to forgive others, other sins, God's not going to forgive our sins. And yet people can become so hardened, so bitter toward someone else that they refuse to forgive. But notice all of these things. Yes, do they meet the spirit, the intent of the Ten Commandments? I suppose we can say that. But we don't think of them just directly that way. Put on tender mercies toward those around us. Kindness, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing, or what I like to think of as that putting up with one another. I think that's where Ephesians says putting up with one another. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do also. And then verse 14, it says, But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Notice 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. And verse 8 says, finally, all of you be of one mind, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In, in giving this sermon, I, I don't want to give the wrong impression there's a tremendous amount of love amongst God's people. And I think that overall, we try to be courteous. We try not to return evil for evil. I think we do those things overall. But what I'm saying here is that we have to go beyond just keeping the letter of the law. We can't just make a checklist of things. Okay, I've prayed, I've studied, I've fasted. I've been baptized now. I don't eat unclean meats. I don't do this. I don't do that. We can't take that approach. We can't take a checklist approach toward Christianity. It is a total way of life, a total way of thinking. And that is something that takes place over a period of time. We don't have it all at first. When I think back on my life, some of the things I've done, some of the bonehead things I've done, stupid things I've done, I'm glad that they're way off in the past. The further in the past they are, the fewer people that are alive that remember them. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we all make mistakes. And, and there is tremendous love within the church of God. I know that. But these things go, in a sense, beyond just keeping the Ten Commandments so you can check off, okay, I don't have any other God before the true God. I don't worship idols. I don't uh, take God's name in vain. No, these are things that we need to strive to, to inculcate into our very character. 
having compassion for one another. Sometimes we can be very cold-hearted towards somebody else's uh, hardship. Love as brothers, being tender-hearted and courteous, and not returning evil uh, for or for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Let's go back to the book of Zechariah, the second chapter. Zechariah, I'm sorry, Zephaniah. Zephaniah, the second chapter in verse 3. It says, Seek the eternal, all you meek of the earth. Again, meek are the people who are humble enough to be teachable. It says, Seek the, the eternal, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. And here's something that is very interesting in this context of seeking justice and righteousness and humility and being meek. It says, It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. These are very important, these characteristics that we must have. What I've tried to do today is to show you that true Christianity goes beyond a checklist fulfilling the letter of the law. And I think too many times that's how people approach life. They don't have a literal checklist, but they think that, okay, I've been baptized I've been in the church a long time. I pay my tithes. I do this. I do that. So I must be okay. No, we must seek the mind of God. Let's close by turning over to Colossians, the third chapter. Colossians, and let's look at a few more things that God tells us or Paul tells us we must do. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If then you were raised with Christ. Seek, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Have you ever meditated on that? What does it mean to seek those things which are above? Does that not go back to what is God's mind on this subject and that subject? You see, especially our younger generation, one of the reasons that Young people leave the church. I don't mean the living church of God. I'm speaking of Christianity in general. But over 30% of those that leave the church say that they left because of the church's stands on LGBTQ uh, movement. In other words, that, that their church doesn't agree with that. That means that people are so caught up in the movement of this world, that that's more important to them than the Word of God. Because the Word of God is very clear on it. It isn't the church. It's the Word of God that speaks of those subjects. And why does God say those things? It's because those, those actions, those practices bring about death and unhappiness, and destruction. Destruction on society in general. Mr. Jonathan McNair gave a sermon a few months ago on masculinity and femininity. Why is, there, why is it important that we understand that men and women are different? 
might want to go back and listen to it. It's right there on the Internet, uh, one of the first ones that come up when you go to the Living Church of God uh, page. You see, there, there are reasons why God does these things. It's not that he hates anybody. And oftentimes, when I'm at a uh, public, uh, not a public, but a uh, Tomorrow's World presentation, and I mention some of these things, I also go to Matthew 11th and 12th chapters, where it shows that the self-righteous Jews are going to find it even more intolerable than Sodom and Gomorrah. In the Gentile cities, because if they had seen the miracles that Christ performed, they would have repented long ago. So it's not that these people are more evil than the rest of us, but there's a problem with those behaviors. And the problem is there's bad for them. And this whole transgender movement, which I just find absolutely insane, that you can have a man competing in women's sports and all this type of thing. But a younger generation has been so indoctrinated that they take the trans person's viewpoint and forget about everybody else, like the women that had the sorority, what is it, in Wyoming or someplace out there? They're in a sorority, and they've got a man who's six foot two and 260 pounds, and he thinks he's a woman, or at least he claims he does, and then he sits around there watching the, the ladies in the, the dorm, or not frat house, but sorority house. It makes them uncomfortable, but they're the bad ones. This is insanity. We need to seek the things of God, the things that are high. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We died at baptism. We put to death the old man. We, at least that's what we were picturing. It started before that, of course, but that was formalizing it. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who has created him. So, brethren, we need to understand that, well, it's nice to have checklists of things, and it's not wrong to put a checklist of what you need to do today. And if you need to put down, pray and study, okay. But we need to recognize that True Christianity is not a checklist. It's not something that we can check off and say, whoop, I got that one finished, that's taken care of. True Christianity goes far beyond that. And I hope that we can learn as we go forward to seek the mind of God. Not just look at what we can get away with or the letter of the law, but really do seek the spirit and the intent of the law and to strive to have Christ living his life in us.